Agents Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by ZBuyer, and ZBuyer offers an unparalleled home buyer and seller lead generation service. It's made by realtors for realtors, which is kind of the cool thing. Since 2003, ZBuyer has been continually perfecting state-of-the-art lead generation pathways. In fact, I've been using them since 2009. And ZBuyer brings motivated home buyers and sellers to you virtually. Visit zbuyer.com forward slash LCA to see how ZBuyer can help you close more deals in 2022. Real estate agents, I ask this question quite often. If you're not investing in real estate agent, having a front row seat and access to all of the data that you have access to, why aren't you doing that? And we've had multiple guests over the years talking about investing, uh, and we're bringing another one on today because he's got a very strong resume. He is teaching and coaching everyone, not just real estate agents, how to do what he has achieved. And we're going to get deep on that today. We're going to talk about the old Burr method. I don't know if I pronounced <laughs> it, but to me, it looks like we're talking about cold temperatures, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat method. I'm excited. I'm excited selfishly to learn from this gentleman today. So welcome to the show, Brian Grimes, founder of Cash or 24-7 Cashflow University. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start here, Brian. Let's start with uh, just learning a little bit about you. So I mean, you have a pretty, pretty, I would say, strong past. You know, you don't have this, uh, from what I read, rags to riches story. I mean, you're an Ivy League grad. Uh, I think I read somewhere that you play basketball, if I'm not mistaken. But tell us just about who you are and kind of what led you to where, where you are today. So I'm a, I'm a Philly basketball, you know, guy at heart. So I grew up uh, in Philly in a C-class neighborhood you know, inner city and uh, during that Allen Iverson era. So um, love basketball, grew up to be about six, four, six, five by the time I was 13. Got good because I have a kind of an obsessive compulsive type of personality, which I've applied to real estate and, and is what's made me successful there too. But just, uh, you know, doing drills, getting better, getting taller. I became nationally ranked, you know, top 10 in the country. And um, got nationally recruited. My first basketball game in, in high school was uh, they flew us out to Akron, Ohio, to play some guy named LeBron James um, in his hometown. And that was, you know, 18,000 sold out at University of Akron. So that was crazy. A lot of good experiences. Uh, basketball took me around the country, around the world to a degree, and then landed me at Columbia University, uh, where I got exposed to just some incredible uh, former athletes that became mentors of mine. In, in the trading field for, you know, options traders down on the New York Mercantile Exchange to commercial real estate brokers that are, um, uh, and mortgage brokers that are, you know, partners with Magic Johnson, TD Jakes, and, and the likes, Alicia Keys, Jay-Z's, you know, doing big types of deals. And they gave me uh, principles and knowledge that transformed the way that I thought about myself, really, and stopped viewing myself as a as an athlete and um, as somebody who could potentially make more money with their mind uh, in finance uh, than their than their body. So I got into finance really with the mindset of every dime I make, I'm going to pay myself first 10, 20%, whatever I can pay myself out of my uh, income and put it to real estate and did that and kind of never looked back and, and built that up to the point where I could jump into real estate full time and, and have uh, been doing that. I think I retired myself from the nine to five around age 30 and been doing real estate full time, you know, ever since. Okay, I've got a bunch of questions. So, first of all, I'm a sports nut, so I'm going to oh, great. back. Our audience knows this. Anytime I interview a, anybody with a sports background, I have to ask a couple of questions. So, uh, first of all, why, why, I mean, obviously you were playing basketball with some very big names. Clearly, you were a big name. Columbia University is not exactly a, a NCAA powerhouse. You know, at what point, obviously, I'm guessing you probably weren't chasing the NBA dream at some point. Like what, how'd that all, how'd that all transpire? I think it's a, I think it's a matter of um, kind of your environment. Like when I was growing up in the, in the C-class neighborhood, inner city and going to those, uh, you know, local like Catholic schools, they were all, all black. The education was at a certain level. And when I started to get recruited for basketball, I'm getting pulled into the prep schools and the, the top schools 
uh, because they happen to be they happen to be the top athletics uh, programs as well. But now you're getting pulled into environments where people are competing to to win, to get a, you know, hey, what did you get on that test? I got an A. I got a B plus. So I did better than you. Uh, type of a environment versus, oh, you got an A, you're, you know, you're not cool. So getting sucked into those environments, I mean, half of my graduating class uh, went Ivy, the other half went Patriot League. And um, you get sucked into that. So, you know, my mother in in particular, and my father kind of got on board with it as well. She, She always wanted me to go to Columbia. And I was getting recruited by other schools, but she liked Columbia. And, um, as I got more into the idea, I started to see the value outside of just basketball because you can, you can play basketball, but you can blow your knee out in finance. When I started to do these internships for these guys, like this is the real story that transformed me. Right. So I'm sitting on the floor of the New York mercantile exchange with this guy I'm, I'm, um, clerking under and we're in the, uh, Eddie Murphy and and Dan Aykroyd, like trading, uh, spaces we're sitting in the pits. Right. And he looks at me, he says, Brian, you want to play professionally, right? You want to play overseas or play an NBA, right? Like, yeah, I'm 22, 235, all muscle. And he's like, how much do you think Kobe Bryant made last year? And I'm like, I don't know, 20, 30 million. He said, I made 40 million last year. And I'm like, Oh, he says, you see that guy over there? I say, yeah. He said he made 80 million last year. This is the F and NBA. I'm, I'm Kobe Bryant and that's LeBron James. I don't know why he said that to me, right? Because this guy was pretty quiet. If you know traders, they're very locked in. They're very quiet, most of them. And especially when they're doing their crafts, he didn't talk much, but he said that to me and it kind of flipped my little world upside down on his head because I started to think about that. Like, are these guys making more money than athletes? And they're coming in from 9.30 to 12, trading, going, spending time with their family, uh, trading from a tablet remotely, and they're making more money than athletes. So it just, tra- it just changed the way that I started thinking. So as I got into Columbia more and more and, and the different mentors, I just knew that there was life outside of basketball. You're not going to blow your knee out in real estate, right? You can play this game until you're 90, until you're off the planet. And I like the, the prospect of that. So I, I knew that it was going to be an option. But as I got older, it became more and more of, of something that I felt like I had to do and I had the skills to do. It's a brilliant, it was a brilliant analogy that he used because he knew exactly, he knew exactly what he was doing because it yeah. resonated with you. Because I think that's what everybody, that's what we're enamored by. It's, it's, it's the fame, it's the money. Right. And, and the reality is, is what, well, I don't know what the, the statistics say, but it's one in millions to become a professional athlete. Whereas you probably have a much greater odds of maybe not being the 40 million or $80 million trader, but maybe being a, uh, a six figure trader, easy, seven figure trader, right. That's, that's pretty awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, and th- so that was pretty young. That was before you even went to Columbia that you, that you had these conversations. No, this was, this was during internships at Columbia. So early on freshman year, um, sophomore year. So it, w- it was, you know, just early on in the process. So as I'm playing, it, it's, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking about all of my options and weighing them. Uh, had a couple injuries, playing. And then it's like, you know, how long am I going to play on a, on a surgically repaired knee? And does this make sense? Or should I get into finance now while I'm young, while I have the energy and start to learn this stuff so I can apply it for a long period of time? So I eventually, one of my mentors taught me, jump and a net will appear. It was, it was his big, one of his big principles he gave me. He's like, you're too high up on the mountaintop. You, you can't see the net. It's all the way down there below the clouds. But if you jump, you'll see it. When it, when it gets there, you have to trust that it will bounce you back up and, and uh, support you. And, you know, it was kind of part of that, just jumping and allowing whatever made me successful in sports to get applied to finance. And I knew if I could make that uh, bridge, that connection, I would be successful and maybe even more successful in finance than I was in, in athletics. I love it. And this is a great for all of you listening to this that are parents. I mean, th- think about just that, just the conversation we just had. And, and, and it kind of, it kind of exemplifies that, you know, that what's between your shoulders, you know, that head, that brain of yours is going to take you probably a lot farther than anything else that, you know, the skill that you have, and this is powerful to share with your kids. I mean, uh, I, I love the fact that you had these opportunities because even just saying that just t- having these opportunities to have these internships 
to go be around, you know, we always say you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. And it's so, it's not cliche. It's, it's a factual statement. And you basically did just that uh, at a very young age. I, I applaud you. That's really awesome. All right. So I, I could ask you questions all day long about basketball, <laughs> and stuff, but, but I don't think our audience is here for that. That's purely selfish. Uh, yeah. So you, you get out of college, you, you go down the, you know, you said the financial planning path kind of, uh, so at what point, so you, you started that, how long did you do that? And then what led you into, you know, investing in real estate, getting back to Philly, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so even before I start working, right, I go to, um, I have my best friend and he's in the real estate and we're always talking uh, real estate. He's just starting to buy like section eight properties. So we go out to like a bar or something, you know, college, related. And he pulls out just like a knot of like hundreds and twenties. And I'm like, what is that? Like we're, we're college kids. We're all broke. He graduated like a year before me. And he's like, this is the rent checks. You know, every, everybody paid and you know, you need to get in. And I'm looking at it and saying, yeah, you know, I really do. So I knew even working, you know, I was going to start to go in that direction and start to put my money towards real estate because when you have somebody that close to you and every time you talk, you're talking real estate, um, you're not talking like sports. You're not talking social events. You're just talking real estate um, and bouncing ideas around. It's only a matter of time before you you take that leap of faith. So I started off uh, working. I knew I wanted to be my own boss from day one. And it, it was, uh, you know, really important. It's something my, me and my buddy would talk about. Everybody was being railroaded from Columbia. I was an econ major. Everyone's going into iBanking. iBanking, you make a lot of money, but you're working 20 hour days go home, take a shower, drink a cup of coffee, come back to work type of uh, atmosphere. And I knew that wasn't for me because I needed the time to apply it to building my, my dream life, to building financial freedom. So I became a financial planner because I could build my own schedule, but I was 100% commission. I'm cold calling. I'm in my early 20s. I don't have some big network that I can tap into. So I'm in a 90% failure rate environment. Cold calling attorneys, whoever I can get on the phone, trying to sell insurance annuities, 100% commission, didn't make a dime for my first six months. And um, going through that experience, you know, surviving that, doing that for two and a half years, it gave me what they call like rhino skin. Your skin becomes 12 inches thick. It can't, a bullet couldn't penetrate it. And you just become det detached, I guess, from the results, the immediate results. You start to learn about this two-month delay. If you put in energy today, two months from now, it will come back in the form of, you know, cash flow or whatever you were looking for. And you start to trust that when you're in a commission-based environment. So going through that experience, the guys at the time would tell me, you know, Brian, no matter what you do, because you survived this gauntlet, you're going to be successful from this experience because you're going to be fearless. And it did make me fearless. You know, I went on to work at a high net worth boutique firm in New York managing where we were managing um, 1.4 billion for about 300 wealthy families. I worked at an insurance startup, uh, Policy Genius, where I was employee like number 23. I'm, I'm running their call center nationally. We're selling thousands of policies a month and building that out and using my sales skills. But the whole time I'm fearless, right? I'm not attached to the nine to five because I've already lived this commission-based job in my, at a time where everyone was failing. The person you're cold calling next to today, they're going tomorrow. Like they burn out. They, they didn't make the cut. They didn't hit the, the checkpoint to get to the next level. So uh, going through that experience, I'm always saving money and putting it in real estate because I always viewed myself as my own boss. Even if I'm there working at the startup, I'm not doing a job. I'm networking with the engineers. I'm networking with the marketing people. I'm learning how the startup is run because I'm underneath the hood. I'm underneath the engine of this thing. I'm learning every piece and, and uh, play so that when I go to build my real estate startup, I can, I know exactly what pieces you need the engineer here. You need the marketing people. You need the assistants. You need the VAs. You need all of the, the comptroller. You need all of these pieces to scale up an operation. So wherever I'm at, I'm learning. Um, just like I'm learning from these mentors from Columbia, how to do my own thing and apply it to real estate. Which leads us to where, to where, so at what point, so as you're building that, you know, what was the jumping off the ledge point for you? It, it was the startup really. When you work at a startup, they tell you, you can uh, show up to work in jeans and bring your dog and you're like, Oh, great. 
what they don't tell you is you're going to work harder than a nine to five. You're going to take the job home with you. You start working, you know, 16 to 18 hour days and it's, it's fun. You're, it's a fast paced environment, but a question comes into your mind, which is if I work this hard for myself, what could I accomplish? Knowing that two month delay, knowing how energy works and how money works, what could I accomplish putting this much time into my dream? So I made the jump there. I started to, I already had a couple deals under my belt. I'd already done a few uh, gut renovations. So I uh, took my money, bought three properties in on a uh, pretty much a kind of burnout block in Philly, my hometown, right in my backyard, really in a C-class neighborhood. One was a, a burnout, one was a teardown, and the other was a shell. And I hired the, the cheapest contractor I could find who, who gave like the best quote. Of course, you already know what, what comes next with that. He ran off with 40 grand and, and completely did not deliver on the job. And then I woke up and said, I got to get really serious about this and um, learn everything, how to be the GC, how much every uh, screw and nail cost that goes into a property, how long the timelines are. Uh, for the subcontractors to put these different tasks together. How long does it take to sheetrock a house? How long does it take to hang doors? How many windows do we need? How do I budget out uh, this process? So I continued to iterate and, and get better over the course of time. And that led to, you know, 300 full gut rehabs over the course of that, maybe the next five to seven years from that point. So let's, let's back it up and, and let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned there. So getting started. You know, because I think most people have yet to even get started or they've done it yeah. and failed. I mean, I, I can probably write a book on failure more than I can success when it comes to this. Now, granted, in my defense, I did a lot of my investing back in 04, 05, 06, leading up to the crash and just got smashed. And it, yeah. just, it, it pissed, you know, it made me feel like, you know, screw this, right? Now I'm back yeah. doing it again. It's been long, that's a long history. But let's talk about that. So, so, um, some strategy on getting started. Definitely. And I've got a few questions because you mentioned C-class, which frankly is very, very high risk, but you have experience in that. So talk about kind of the psychology behind why you choose that C-class. And then I, I want to get granular and, and ask you questions like, you know, you mentioned you bought those three properties. Did you pay for them with cash? Because you probably weren't getting financing on them. And what does that take? So yeah, a couple questions there. Let's let's start there. Yeah. So let's let's start with the C class. So the C class, some can view it as riskier, right? And I I, I would assume the cap rates will reflect that to a degree. There's a, a a risk reward analysis. Hypothetically, you know, the more risk you take, um, the more reward there is. So the cap rates in the C class are definitely juicier. Now, I'm very good at navigating the C class uh, because I grew up there. And one, one of my uh, mentor's principles was buy where you know, rent to who you know, and you'll always be successful. He said, that's the, the simplest principle I could keep with real estate to protect myself. And what I took that to mean is buy in neighborhoods that are like the one you grew up in or that remind you of that, something you're familiar with that you've been in before. Uh, rent to people who are from a walk of life like you or like you were when you were growing up or like you are now. And you'll be successful because you'll understand the neighborhoods and the people and what makes them tick and the issues that they face and how to do what what really all real estate investors need to do, whether you're residential or commercial, which is pick winners. You got to learn how to pick winners, because at the end of the day, real estate and cash flow investing is all about picking good tenants. You can you can fall in love with HGTV and how to full gut renovate. But if you can't pick good tenants, there's no cash flow. You're going to fall behind on your mortgage payments and the, and the property is going to go kaput. So sticking with that strategy, I, I navigate the C-class very well. I, I find that there are very high cash on cash returns. Like my first property, I did an FHA on, got a seller's assist. I put down 7,000, rented out the units. I was cash flowing $1,000 a month uh, off of that property. And that was from day one. That was like my first deal. And, and that was because it was in kind of a B, C-class fringe area where you know, you could buy this property, a duplex, triplex for 130K and just cash flow the heck out of it. I also find that C-class properties, because you can get them for lower than the inherent cost. And what does that mean? So the shells uh, that I bought, the burnout, the, the teardown, those properties I was buying for $10,000, $10, $15,000 a piece. 
So when you're buying properties that low in cost in a major city, I'm buying them in Philly. It's the sixth largest city in America. And these weren't in the worst parts of Philly either. These were in just a a marginal C-class neighborhood that I knew working class people will live in, people who work for the city, who work for SEPTA, who uh, drive buses, who, you know, do these types of hardcore working class jobs. They're going to be able to live here. They'll be comfortable. They'll raise their family. So I'm tapping into those type of neighborhoods, but you're buying them for $10,000. You have to look at the inherent cost of the structure, the cost of the bricks, the cost of the, uh, just the shell, the frame of the property and being tapped into those utility lines. It's like, I mean, today it's like a, almost a hundred K if you, if you bought a land lot and tried to do that. So when you're buying it below the inherent value, there's already a value, like a $90,000 value there because these assets similar to stocks, they return to their natural inherent value over the course of time. So when you do this C-class investing, what I've found is if you can buy low and then learn how to be your own GC and build low, build at cost, pay the labor directly, pay the cost of construction directly and buy extremely low from auctions, sheriff sales, wholesalers, you can get in these properties. You can get paid to build them through cash out refinances and the birth strategy. And then they'll double or triple in, in uh, value. So your net worth is going to skyrocket. Like my first deal I bought for 130K is worth 300,000. And all I did was hold on to it. Like, I, I promise you, I didn't put a ton of work into it. I painted the walls, swept the floors and handed over the keys, collected cash flow, and it doubled or tripled in value. And you can get that in the C class. It's harder to get that when you're buying them in the A class at the top. Right. Um, so I look at risk a little bit different because to me, it's riskier to buy high and deal with a tenant pool um, where I can't section eight. I can't do some of these different tenanting strategies like co-living that I like to do. And those those tenants at the top, they're going to lose their jobs first in the recession. Those assets are going to suffer the hardest in a recession. My assets, those people are moving into me. You know, they're moving into my properties in a recession. So I'm I'm kind of building a model that is a bit more recession proof and looking at the long game in that sense. So I, my risk analysis tells me these are actually the safest assets because I could buy them lower, uh, get more appreciation, bet higher cash flow, and I can survive the recession with Section 8 tenants uh, on these properties. So it, it, for me, it's just been a, it's been a win-win. And also it, it matches, lastly, my community-focused, you know, focused, mission-focused uh, purpose. And, you know, I'm not, I have the skill set, right? A 20,000 square foot warehouse, 150 contractors, best contractors in the city. I can go flip properties like anywhere in the country. And I have the experience to do it. I can flip them in the A-class neighborhoods. But it doesn't match my mission. My mission is to rebuild the C-class neighborhoods until they look like the B or A-class neighborhoods, to put people back into the neighborhoods, to run out blight, and to restore uh, you know, money bouncing in those neighborhoods. The contractors I hire, they're from those neighborhoods. So it's putting money in their pocket, food on their family's table. It's a community-based uh, rebuilding, restoring pride type of a, a mission that I'm on. So while I could do these other things that people are out doing, I stay tapped into my mission because uh, that, you know, you can make money, but you also have to be tapped into your own purpose because that's what's going to keep you going. Which, which leads me back to a statement that you made earlier, which was one of your mentors said, you know, go where you know the area. So then let's use myself as the example, very middle-class uh, bring up. I was not, we were not super wealthy, but we were far from low class. But we had a, I had a, I definitely don't have a rags to riches story, just a very <laughs> stable story, right? Typically, yeah. I would call it. So, so that mentor, then if I'm talking to him, I should be buying in just a standard middle-class neighborhood. Cause that's the person I can speak to. And, and furthermore, what if I do come from, I, I always tease the owner of the mortgage company that we're belong to, because this guy, I mean, talk about silver spoon and don't get me wrong. The guy's very successful. He's done his own stuff, but his dad owned a diamond mine. I mean, you know, his sisters are surgeons uh, and he went on, you know, he went to Vanderbilt and went to PG and all this just very cliche, rich people stuff. And, and so, so he, so should he only be investing in those areas, which now become, I guess, 
higher risk because you're a higher price points, but he can speak to those people that I can't speak to. So I can't go into C-class and be like, hey, I can totally relate to you. Uh, and I can't go into the high-end neighborhoods and say, I can totally relate to you. How much is there to that? Because I've, I've, I mean, it makes sense. I've never actually heard somebody say it. I've failed uh, at investing in C-class neighborhoods. It, maybe it was timing. Maybe it was because we didn't, we couldn't speak the language. Maybe, and I want to ask you about finding good tenants, but I don't know yeah. the people, I, you know, so it's, it's very risky in my opinion, because those neighborhoods yeah. have one person could come off and speak a good game, but they could be a drug dealer on one side. The other person could be a very, uh, you know, first-class citizen just working his ass off to make a living. And he's going to be very responsible, but how do I know that you have that advantage? How, I mean, no, it's a, it's a great it's a great question. I think it comes down to, you know, I mean, if, if anybody can't tell, I'm huge on mentors, right? I talk about my mentors all the time uh, because that's how that's how I was able to uh, get into certain arenas. Like I didn't grow up around, you know, traders and people that are making millions of dollars on a tablet, you know, every day with their brain. But when you get exposed to it, you can tap in you know, to them and kind of live vicariously through them, learn those lessons and then apply it. The same thing, you know, I found in real estate, which is if you're not from the C class, you would want to have some type of mentorship from somebody who is, if that's something you want to do, because the cap rates are better. The cash flow is better. I mean, you got into the C class because you probably saw some of these things like, hey, I can buy low, I can get more cash flow. And there is a what the, the thing to keep in mind is there is a way to make it work out it's just, everybody just doesn't know how, like in any, in any bad neighborhood, I can take you to the worst part of Baltimore and there's going to be good blocks, like really good blocks, even in the worst neighborhoods where everybody owns, people live there. Like it's, this is like the safe pocket of the bad neighborhood. It's always like that. And then there are bad pockets of the, of the best neighborhoods, like no matter where you're at. So it's just learning how to navigate. So I would say for me, it made me successful because at that time, while I had mentors that could give me knowledge, you know, they're busy doing their own thing. And when I'm getting started in, in real estate, we didn't have, you know, this platform and other platforms out there like decades ago for people to tap into. YouTube was still kind of newer. Uh, social media wasn't built out. There wasn't, you know, Instagram and all these different things weren't built out. So you couldn't find people and knowledge as easily. Um, you're like trying to Google how to do some of this stuff. There's barely a name for like house hacking. You know, there, it was barely like, that was like secret industry knowledge. So I think just tapping in, if you're going to go out and learn from the school of hard knocks, this is a principle that will save you. And I did learn from the school of hard knocks. What they didn't tell me about the school of hard knocks is that it's a hundred times more expensive than mentorship because that 40,000 that somebody ran off with, maybe you pay somebody you know, two grand and they'll teach you the whole game and, and make sure you never get burned. But um, it will save you in that sense. But if you get mentorship, you can you can navigate and learn from somebody who's done, you know, it a hundred times in these types of neighborhoods and get all the lessons that you need so that you can do it successfully, you know, from day one. But, uh, you know, there it's a great question for that reason. And that's how I would apply it. If you're going to get mentorship, you can short circuit it. But if you're going to go out and learn from the School of Hard Knocks, you're, that's going to be your best friend is staying within your kind of lane in that sense or where your comfort zone is and then expanding upon that over the course of time after you have early success. The school of hard knocks, though, is what defines successful people because most, <laughs> most people go through the hard knocks and, and retreat and quit and say, screw this, I'm going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to safety net. And the successful people, the smaller percentage say, I'm going to learn from this. And I'm not, yeah. not going to make this mistake again. This hurts and it knocked me back, but I'm not going to, I'm going to go. I mean, you and I could probably tell countless stories of many hard yeah. times um, because that's what it takes. You know, I've failed more, way more times than I succeeded. Luckily my success is far outweigh my, my failures, but my failures created those successes, you know, and, and um, I, I don't want to go down that path because I want to stay very, I want to stay down this lane. Yeah. But let's, let's talk about identifying good tenants. Okay. Uh, you know, so how, how do you do that? Because I think that's such an important piece of this. And I think, again, people look at, you, you go into investing, 
You look at, you know, what am I paying for the property? What will it comp at? What do I have to put into it in order for it to, to resell or to rent? What's my cash flow? It's very simplistic mindset, but I don't think we'll put a lot of thought into, okay, how do I vet good tenants? Yeah. How do I pick winners? Yeah. Even if you're, you're, you're a commercial guy and you're going to rent out to a, a uh, you know, commercial tenant, how do you know yeah. that they're a winner? What I've found, I'll speak to the C-class because some these, these principles can be applied like everywhere, right? Because the C-class is, I would say, the hardest to, to underwrite. You start to learn early on, like there are people, one, one key principle is people are not their credit score. The credit score model is a, is a slightly outdated so you'll find people with good credit scores who don't pay for whatever reason. And then you'll have uh, scenarios like, you know, I had somebody move into one of my properties in Baltimore with a five, I think a 520 credit score. They paid, they paid surprisingly six months in advance, like out of nowhere. They had already paid the move-in fees and then they showed up the next month with, with six months rent in advance. And the people are like, what? In the, in the C-class neighborhood? Yeah. Uh, somebody with that credit score? Certainly. So you have to underwrite people, not credit scores. So you have to get into like their job. Is their job actually durable? What type of job are they doing? You have to test your tenants as well. So when they're going through the move-in process, I might do things like, oh, we're going to be there at 10 and we show up at 11. See, just to see how they react for like a showing, even when they're just coming to see the property. Test, their te test them, text them, see how they respond via text. People who can articulate themselves well, speak well, calmly, they're going to be the same way when something goes wrong in your property. And something's always going to go wrong. There's going to be a leak. The fridge is going to go. Their, their food's going to thaw out. And there are going to be things that are stressors. If they don't articulate themselves well or speak well when there's no stressor, that is a major indicator that this is not going to be somebody you can manage when things are going on with their job, money's coming up short, they have to be on some type of payment plan they're going to get even worse. So you start to pick up on some of these micro warning signs as you get better at underwriting. A good thing if you're underwriting Section 8 tenants, a lot of people had this question. I, I love Section 8. It's like a, the best thing since a government muni, right? It's just the government paying you a check every month, but they're going to destroy the property, aren't they? Well, here's a quick tip that, that I learned. If uh, you, you get somebody to give you the voucher, they're going to move in. You're kind of moving them through the process. Before you move them in, before you complete that transaction, what you want to do is do a surprise pop-up visit. So you want to come to their uh, property. Hey, I'm uh, 10 minutes away. Uh, we just need to do a quick inspection of your current residence. Okay? Usually you're going to get the yes. They're, they're sitting at home. Go to where they're living before they move into your property. Mm. Pop-up inspection. Don't give them any time to do anything. And they, even if you gave them two hours, they won't clean a thing. If they live filthy, they're going to they're gonna sh show you the filthy property because they don't see anything wrong with it. But if you walk in that property and you could eat off the floor, that's how they're going to take care of your property. People, one, once again, in underwriting people, not socio-demographic area, people live, there are very wealthy people who live filthy. Yeah. And there are very poor people who live pristine. That is, that is not a, a, a byproduct of how much money you make. It's just how you were raised. Like my father was like a drill sergeant, right? Like army cleaning, scrub the tub with, with bleach and a, almost a toothbrush, like a little scrub brush. And that's how we were raised. So that's how we live. And it doesn't matter how much money I'm making at the time. It's just a comfort of, of a living and what you become accustomed to. So you start to underwrite and look for good people that are easy to deal with when things go wrong, articulate themselves well, speak well, that live in a certain way and will take care of your property the way that they're taking care of their current property. And you can throw little tests at them and uh, different things. I mean, I could, I could go into it kind of all day, but there are things that you pick up over the course of time, which you don't fall for is just the, the, the early impression. Like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll run on this quick story because it's, it's kind of funny, but it's, it's kind of crazy too. Right. So I had this tenant, one of my first tenants that I, I did the eviction for, and she's like, God bless. Like after every text, God bless you. And you know, I don't, Go to church, everything, that's fine. But God bless after every text, like appears very like, you know, nice and down to earth. She knew she was what I call a professional tenant. 
And you need to check for this too. Facade. You need to. The God bless was a facade. Is that what it, it was? was? A fa- it was a facade, right? She's a professional tenant. So as I'm learning more about underwriting, I'm learning and I go in, I'll check the uh, municipality for eviction history, but I'll also dig through the case, which is another level of underwriting that people don't do. I don't just care if you got evicted. Some people get evicted. I want to see, did you file petitions to stay and every motion to stay that you possibly could? Because now you're approaching what I call professional tenant, which means, you know, the landlord tenant laws better than my attorney, you know? So I want to see these things. She's a professional tenant. She waits, she files every motion to uh, dismiss, every motion to stay. She waits until the day before the lockout, knocks on the neighbor's door. Ms. Jones, I have nowhere to stay tonight, which which was a lie. Nowhere to stay tonight. Can I just crash on her couch? I'll be going in the morning. Ms. Jones lets her in. And Ms. Jones is a tenant of another landlord on on the block that I know. Ms. Jones wakes up. The lady's gone. And Ms. Jones' pocketbook is gone. And all of her money and her wallet, her ID, like not only did somebody take your money, but all of your your things, like everything that you need to, to function as a normal human being in society, gone. I get the call from the other landlord. Your tenant, she stole my tenant's money. Now my tenant can't pay the rent. So this tenant was so bad that she stole another tenant's money and that tenant went delinquent on the rent. Like it's, it's the craziest thing. I was just like, oh my goodness. So you start to learn to not also fall for the, these what facades, could, what could but you to look have behind done better? What could you have done better to catch that? What can someone do to catch that? Get into, learn about landlord tenant law. One, one, having a bad tenant experience, get into that. So I did the eviction. I went to court. I stood in front of the judge. I filed all the paperwork and I started to learn how to get into the landlord tenant uh, files so you can see what these people are you know, doing. Are they filing motions and petitions? Because these are warning signs that not, not only are they not going to pay, they know how to not pay and stay. And that's a dangerous tenant, you know, no matter what their credit score is, because it gives them a level of they know how to game the system. So you want to avoid, regardless of credit score, people who know how to game the system because the credit score doesn't tell you that. So you want to check for uh, that type of stuff. I should have done more tests or picked up on the warning signs because there were just issues with kind of attitude, even even on top of the, you know, God bless stuff. It was just issues with the attitude. Uh, of the tenant for little things before she even moved in that I could have picked up on. But once again, a lot of this is experiential. I break a lot of this down in my, um, in my mentorship program, but a lot of it is experiential and just understanding these micro warning signs, because you have to get past the way that everybody underwrites the way everybody underwrites right now leaves a lot of people in, in landlord tenant court because it just doesn't work. It's an outdated way of looking at things. It it really is. It's almost lazy, though. It It is lazy. Because it's like, here's an application, fill it out. And this is what society has told me to do. It's what the mortgage industry does for, 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 you know, uh, for that matter. So uh, I see what you're saying. It takes a little bit extra effort to go visit them at their current property. It takes a little bit effort to intentionally show up late to see how they react to you showing up late. I mean, that's that's like a I'm going to use a harsh word. That's a mind fuck. (laughs) No, it it is. It is. But this thing is serious, right? Because we're dealing with possession and possession is I got the keys. I'm the owner of the property. I have the deed. I I sign the lease. I give you the keys. Now they got possession. And the only way to get it back is to go through this court process and get a writ of possession uh, and then have a sheriff show up and, and serve that writ. So when, before you hand over possession, you better do everything in your power to ensure that you picked a winner because this is, if you pick a winner and their average stay is five to eight years, that's a, that's an ATM you can show up to every month. The best tenants, and you know, this are the ones nobody ever talks about. They never call. You never do. You never hear from them and the money comes in. Those are the best tenant tenants. So you got to pick the winners and master the science of that. There's also like personality tests uh, that I've experimented with. As well, you know, somebody's on that dark triad triad test, and they're popping up, you know, in a, in an odd way. You might want to look into that. So there are different things available to us outside of just your credit score. Micro lenders are are using this information right now. They're thinking about how do I issue a five thousand or ten thousand dollar loan to somebody 
who doesn't yeah, make a ton of money. Like a hard money lender type thing, is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, like a, just a micro lender, like just SoFi small, or, small, yeah, yeah, some of these small micro lenders, they're in this space and they're addicted to this data. Like, how do I lend small amounts of money to people that only make three grand a month and ensure a some type of a, a rate of return? So they're into this underwriting style of getting really granular with the underwriting. So psychology. I, I was- Psychology yeah, versus data, this is crazy. It's psychology. Most of us, we spend so much time on the building process and all these other things and all these different strategies. And we spend virtually no time on uh, underwriting. And it's crazy because the entire business is about underwriting and picking winners. No matter what sector of real estate you're in, if you can't pick winners, it's not long before you'll be out of business. Wow. I, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great conversation um, because I don't think we spend enough time on it. And I don't think a lot of, a lot of us investors or would-be or, or aspiring investors probably even think much about this. I'm glad we talked about that. Yeah. Let, let's, let's fast forward back or, or rewind, whichever way you want to look at it, to, <laughs> to kind of your strategy and suggestions for getting in early. So, Obviously, we always want to keep as much of our own money in our pockets, which is what a mortgage is designed for. Now, as, as we speak today, getting a mortgage, A, is a hell of a lot harder. Rates are 10x higher. And, and maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, two or three X higher. And, and getting a second home or investment property loan is damn near impossible. Um, and you're paying points because it's just ridiculous. So, Let's talk in today's terms versus maybe what it was like five, six, 10 years ago. You know, what is your strategy or suggestion to someone who says, okay, I want to buy. How do you, what, how do you advise someone to get into the game? I, th I think, uh, well, it depends on who you are, right? So I'm one person uh, that you'll hear say, I love the birth strategy. It built me massive wealth, but I'm strategy agnostic. And I believe in, in um, having multiple strategies because I look at this, you're a sports guy, I'm a sports guy. If you're playing football, you don't want to sweep right into a blitz. Uh, if you're playing basketball and they're three feet off you, you're shooting the ball. If they run up on you, you drive around them. You need to be able to adjust to the market. So one, it depends on what the market's doing, what the strategy is. If rates are going up, for instance, uh, if rates are going from a, a 4%, 45 or 5%, for a, a non-QM loan for the, the uh, bro bro uh, brokers out there who know that the non-QM, non-qualified mortgages are to, you know, seven and a half to 8%, right? And I'm an investor. I'm going to start looking at creative financing. I'm going to start looking at things like subject to and finding people who are experienced in this market pain and are in pre-foreclosure potentially. And can I take over an existing uh, mortgage payment on somebody who was a owner OC and has a 3.25% mortgage. Cause isn't that the goal mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. Isn't that where I need to focus my money, especially if I'm trying to get started and I have little to no uh, cash and bad credit or no credit. Shouldn't I be looking at creative financing, like lease purchase options, sandwich leash options, land contracts, subject to, and all of these advanced creative financing strategies, because there is market pain that's being created from this. There are people in pre-foreclosure so why don't I learn how to tap into that and get into that activity to build cash flow? Grab some of those properties subject to and reposition them in uh, rent to own, uh, you know, lease purchase contracts so that I can sit as the middleman and collect cash flow and build, you know, my portfolio that way. So I look at it as, you know, if the market is getting really high, but pricing is high, I might buy and flip, even though. I'm a, I'm a buy and holder by nature. I've never uh, seen a property I didn't want to you know, keep uh, or regret selling. I never met a, pro a developer who uh, sold a property that they didn't regret, right? Um, so buy and hold fanatics, you might need to flip a little bit. You also might need to look into creative financing strategies. But the moral of the story is react to the market, be strategy agnostic. They say it's not, it's not a, you know, how good you're doing, it's how long you're doing good. And the way to do good for a long time in real estate is to be strategy agnostic and to be flexible and be able to react to whatever the market is doing at the current time. So the more knowledge you have about these different strategies that are available to you, the more, you know, the more money you'll make. And lastly, what I'll say on that is if you're just getting started, there's only two things in real estate. There's uh, money and knowledge. And the less you have of one, the more you need of the other. So if you don't have much money, you need way more knowledge like creative financing. If you have a ton of money, you almost don't need any knowledge. I mean, if you had $2 million, 
Just go learn from the school of hard knocks. Go blow half a million figuring it out and you'll recover in this game because once you figure it out in a multi-trillion dollar industry, I mean, it's not long before you recover and fail forward, uh, you know, like me and Jeff have over the years and, and recover on those losses and keep moving forward. What is so, so right now, uh, based on, you know, we're, we're high, we're low inventory, overpriced, and the highest rates we've seen in the last six, seven, eight years. That, that's a shitty recipe right there. Um, and, and so I think in some cases, people won't be looking at it and saying, oh, it's a terrible time to be investing. I, I imagine you're going to disagree. And so where should somebody focus right now? And I think the right now is going to last for a little while, at least six months. Barry Habib, who we follow, MBSI, was predicting rates will dip again, but probably not to the end of the year, maybe even first quarter of next year. So there's some yeah. time here right now. What should somebody's strategy be? I mean, one is learn as much as possible, but also understand, uh, you know, in terms of strategy, one thing I don't talk about enough maybe is out of my 300 full gut jobs, I probably did 290 of them completely out of town in different states while living in New York, doing it in, in Texas, doing it in Baltimore, doing it in Delaware, South Jersey, Philly. So learning how to invest out of town and leverage today's technology and the systems necessary to do this out of town will unlock you and allow you to realize that while all of the news is telling you that real estate is horrible everywhere, it's not true. Tampa, Florida is over, over uh, heated. It's the hottest market uh, in the country, I believe, um, this year or for parts of this year. Um, Boise, Idaho, parts of uh, the West Coast, a lot of the West Coast, Phoenix, certainly. Um, a lot of these areas are overheated. But if you look at the Northeast, I mean, if you if you went to Baltimore right now or Cleveland or, or uh, parts of Philly, they're not going to experience major downturns in the market like right now, even with rates going up and, and some of these things. So you have to look at the, the hardcore data and realize we're state specific. We're, we're local, um, you know, state to state or city to city specific with some of these big downturns and some of the massive uh, negative pullbacks that are being projected right now. So if you know how to invest out of town, it's a great time to tap into that or start to use those strategies to go into cities that are still underpriced, maybe where you could buy for more cash. Like in, in Baltimore, you could pick up a property for 20, 30 grand uh, in some of the neighborhoods uh, that I'm in, like the John Hopkins area, 20, 30 grand, put in 20 grand. And uh, so you're in 50K, rent that out for 1200 a month, section eight, like money coming in from the government and, and the government's paying almost hundred percent of the check. And uh, you might not need a big mortgage. Maybe you go to the credit union there, put a 30K mortgage on it. Does it really matter if rates are five and a half or 7% on a 30, $30,000 mortgage? Sure. No, it doesn't. You're going to collect massive cash flow. So getting into different strategies, and, and that's why I like staying low to the ground because I'm buying so low, uh, most of my Baltimore activity is all cash anyway. So I don't even care what the bank's doing or what the Fed's doing. I'm saying, oh, more more inventory, prices coming down, great. But in some of these markets, it's still a good time to flip because prices aren't going to fall. And there's just now more inventory and price softness on the lower end. So on those shelves, the price is going from 60000 back to 30000 And it's increasing what I would call the developer spread, which for me, a developer spread means if I can buy it for 50000 or less, and the after repair value is 250000 or more, I have a $200,000 spread to operate in as a developer. And I can make money there because I can build it for hundred k and do a cash out refi of 30000 $40,000 mm -hmm. and recycle my capital and keep running and make it more cash flow. So, you know, a lot of things, more knowledge. Um, where, into, where, where, where do you suggest they go get the knowledge? Um. I mean, look, there. I would always recommend myself, right? So cool. if, if you want to tap into, uh, you know, my knowledge and, and my program, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm all over social social media. But it's, you know, it's, it's not, for what I do, there aren't many of me, right? There's not many guys who grew up in a C class, happen to get really good at basketball, grow to six, seven, and go around the world and land at Columbia and then go back into these neighborhoods and, and show you how to turn them around and make massive amounts of money. So if that's something that resonates with you and your mission, you can always tap in, you know, to me, but I think just not watching the news, not necessarily getting into the, the big media that is really talking to the, the mass majority of owners of real estate, which 
we're investors and we, we think of ourselves really highly. We represent one fifth of the, of the ownership of real estate in, in America. And a lot of those people are like massive investors, um, like a, like a BlackRock. So yeah, they're talking to the four fifths, right? They're talking to the average American out there. So they're giving them the warning signs that if you're going to buy a house just to live in, it's a really horrible time. But as an investor, that's not necessarily true. I love it. You know, I almost was, as I'm sitting here thinking and talking to you, I almost feel like we need to do a round two. We need to do a, we need to do a second episode because, because you just opened up another can of worms, which, which we don't have. Time <laughs> for, which, number one, I would like to talk more about your, about your university 24 seven, give a chance to talk about that, but also, you know, you just opened up that can of worms of out of state. Well, everything that we just talked about, about, about vetting a tenant now. Okay. Now that I, I can't just go fly to Baltimore and, and go do a pop by. Right. So now there's a whole yeah. other level there because there is some risk. Now I'm buying in a neighborhood in a city that I have, I have no experience in. I assume yeah. we're doing probably some FaceTiming walkthroughs. You probably have local realtors. I have done some interviews uh, with other people that do this, but I, I wouldn't be mind if you're open to it, do a, maybe a oh, second episode. No, um, definitely. Okay. Definitely. We, we can keep talking about this, but in the meantime, because obviously when you're listening to this, you're going to have to wait another week to listen to the second one based on when these are released. So tell our audience in the meantime, how they can find you, how they can connect. No, definitely. Um, you can find me on YouTube. I drop a lot of free content on YouTube. Brian loves cash flow. And it's easy to remember because I, I'm in love with cash flow, right? Brian loves cash flow on YouTube. On uh, Instagram, Brian Grimes underscore 247 Cash Flow University. You can find me on, on Facebook, Brian Grimes. Uh, pretty easy to find. You can Google 247 Cash Flow University and you'll find me. And uh, if you want to tap into a free training, I put together a really cool free training for you guys. So on www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. And you can tap directly into free trainings that I put together for you. You can text me. We can hop on the phone one-on-one to uh, discuss how you can get started from like zero, no money. You don't even need credit to do this stuff. And I know people have heard of that and think it's weird, but trust me, um, this game is crazy. And the knowledge out here is insane. Right now, you can really get out and get started with little to no cash and no credit at all. So if you want to, um, if you tap into any of those resources, they're all backlinked. So you can always tap into that free training, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and then, um, you know, get a hold of me, shoot me texts and, and we can talk one-on-one for anybody who's interested in going to the next level. We also have a program uh, where we build properties uh, for people in Philly because I have a, a huge uh, base in Philly, 150 contractors there. So we can buy you or help you to find a property, connect you with the different lenders that'll give you hundred percent of the capital to acquire and rehab these properties and really get granular with you, uh, build a property for you, help you to tenant it and produce massive amounts of cash flow. Um, we have students from all over the world, not even inside the country that are tapped into this and having properties built for them uh, and getting some U.S. real estate and cash flow because uh, real estate is, is crazy everywhere, right? So we have some really good opportunities here to the point where people outside of the country are tapping in. Love it, man. I love it. Well, I tell you what, uh, it sounds like uh, we are going to just bid adieu to this uh, first episode and then I'll <laughs> see you on the second one. Appreciate it. I'm so uh, appreciative that you have me here. Thanks, brother. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Street Text, where you can run Facebook ads that actually work. They're ready to go Facebook ads that include landing pages, text message assistance through AI, drip emails, capture forms, and best practices. Join Street Text at streettext.com. Agents Podcast.